Good morning, church. Uh, we're going to study God's Word together. It's a delight to be with you, even though we're at a distance. It's a delight to get to open God's Word, to get to sing His Word deep into our souls, to be led in prayer. So thanks for joining us. If you're a guest with us, thank you for, for participating in this and joining us and tuning in. I hope that all of us come away with encouragement from Scripture. Uh, God, God wants to reinforce our faith in moments like this. Church, I just want to say to you, uh, the Lord's going to carry us through this. Uh, it, he's, going to, he's going to preserve our faith. He's going to strengthen us as we walk forward together. So we're going to get some truth from God's word. If you would, open up to John chapter 17 with me. Uh, isn't it true how um, worship recalibrates believers? It's been designed to do that for 2,000 years. It recalibrates the soul. It gets us looking up and out. And how much do we need that? Right now, especially after the weeks that we've been seeing these past couple of weeks, we need our soul retuned, recalibrated. We need our eyes to see how great and glorious God is. And there is incredible and timely truth for us here in John chapter 17. So let me just remind us of the context. So we've been in it for a couple of weeks. Um, John 13 through 17 is the farewell discourse. These, this is Jesus' last words to, to put steel in the spine of his disciples. A storm is coming. You can tell it's about to get ugly because Jesus says in a number of different ways. In John chapter 16, for example, he says it's about to get ugly. He, he tells them that. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but do not fear. I have overcome the world. So he is preparing them for a coming storm. We've talked about that these past couple of weeks. And here in John 17, the, the magic of John 17 is Jesus stops talking to his disciples and he starts talking to the Father on behalf of his disciples. That's why it's, it's called the high priestly prayer. There is so much here. I wish we had time to, to really unpack it more fully, right? So centuries ago, the, the great Thomas Manton, a great preacher, he spent 45 Sundays unpacking this one chapter of the Bible. It is, so, um, it is so strengthening to our faith to hear our Savior, our sovereign intercessor, carry us before the throne of grace. And that's what I trust we're going to hear. Don't, friends, don't miss the relevance of these words that I'm about to read in John 17. When your world is shaking, this is how your sovereign God and Savior prays for you. So if you'd follow along with me, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, them, me rather, so that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, 
I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. One of the things that I said last week from the earlier portion of this text is this truth. Believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus cannot fall as long as Jesus is praying for us. And Hebrews 7.25 tells us Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. That might be a verse that you want to put on speed dial this week. Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is completely able to save those who come to God through him because he continually makes intercession for them. That's, that's a scripture verse to, to keep on the shelves of hope for us this week. And we're in a passage that allows us not only to know that Jesus is praying for us, but to hear how he's praying for us. What is he saying to the Father? What do we most deeply and fundamentally need? And so like them, in some ways analogous to them, uh, we're in the midst of a trial, right? It, it's a providential thing that, in my judgment, that, that in the midst of this unbelievable global pandemic, that God has kindly landed us in a passage in John's gospel where Jesus is, is giving truth to believers who are facing trials. It's about to get really bad. How does Jesus pray? How does he prepare them for spiritual advance? He, he prays for them in three ways. He prays for the oneness of the church, the witness of the church, and the worship of the church. So three points, oneness, witness, and worship. Oneness. So oneness is Jesus' chief concern in our text. Just look down at the passage there. Verse 21 to 23 says this. May they all be, there's that word, one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you've given me, me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one. He's just saying it over and over, drumming that word oneness, the oneness of the church. And in the mystery of this prayer, Jesus even goes so far as to say that the oneness of the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ should be analogous, should gesture in the direction of the very oneness of the Trinity. The oneness of the relationship that Jesus has with the Father should be seen in the church. It's a oneness of purpose. It's a oneness of intention. It's a oneness of action. It's, it's a oneness in love that he's praying for in the church. We, we've always said this. Churches across the city, churches who look at God's word and study God's word have always said this, but, but Christians seem to be realizing it in a fresh way right now. It's a point in your notes. We need spiritual community. We need spiritual community. A book that I was reading this week, it uh, tells a story of a pastor many years ago. This pastor uh, who was a Dutchman from Michigan, lived most of his life in Michigan, but he found himself some years back traveling to the South for the very first time. <laughs> and he, he walks into a breakfast place and he looks at the menu and he sees something that he didn't know what it was. Lots of people north of the Mason-Dixon line don't know what grits are. And he looked and he saw the word grits and he asked the waitress, can you tell me what a grit is? 
And her response, I can almost hear my grandma, my nanny from Texas saying in her Texas accent, Southern drawl, she said, honey, they don't come by themselves. Right. So Christian, the same is true with Christians. Christians don't come by themselves. You can't order just one. Even when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, they say, teach us to pray. And he begins with the word our, our father. He doesn't say pray this way. My father, he's think of yourself uh, in a collective. Think of yourself as one with brothers and sisters in your faith family. Uh, Jesus is talking about the importance of the oneness of the church, the functional, relational, one mind, one heart, oneness of the church. Uh, We saw a little bit last week in verse 17 and other places how Jesus has sanctified them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, So this isn't some vague kumbaya, you know, nebulous oneness. It is an oneness that's anchored in gospel truth. We hold fast the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We already talked about that a little bit last week, but it's more than that. It's not less than that, but this oneness that Jesus is praying for is a relational reality. It's a, it's a bond. It's an, I'll do everything in my power to help you love Jesus and grow in Jesus and make disciples of Jesus until we all see Jesus together, right? That's the church. That's what the church is called to. And that's what Jesus is praying for his people. That's how Jesus prays for us. Even in a week like this, that's how Jesus prays for us. He prays for the church at Brook Hills, those truths. I saw a video that maybe many of you saw this week. A number of videos have been posted from ministries and small groups and so forth. Some of you have been posting on your social media ways that you're connecting with other believers. And I saw this video. We're about to watch it in a second. It's a video of a 12-year-old girl named Amaya in our church. And she's on her couch and she's reading God's word. And she's looking at a screen. And the person on the screen is her 16-year-old small group leader. It's a student-led kind of thing. And so they're interacting in God's word. I just love what this picture shows. So watch this with me. In these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Worlds, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. So I watched that and I just thought, look, look at the body of Christ. Not only that, so I saw a number of ways in which um, some of our senior adult small groups are caring for members of their small groups. You just see it all over online. You see ways that people are overcoming the distance and caring for each other, FaceTime calls, checking in, dropping off things at one another's houses. This is how we express the oneness that Jesus was praying for 2,000 years ago, it's still in action. It's still going live in our community, even when we're isolated in unique times like this. So you ask the question, when we think about Jesus praying for the oneness of believers and oneness in the church, um, you ask the question, who's going who's gonna to stand with Brook Hills members who are walking through unique trials? All of us are experiencing this in 
in some way together. There's a solidarity that's been forced upon us. But there are some in our church, and who's going to stand with those who have special health concerns, and so they have special anxieties and fears right now, or those members who have lost work right now, or those members who own or lead small businesses in our community, and they're awake at night wondering, how am I going to keep paying my employees so that they can provide for their families? And so there's anxiety and stress that's mounting in so many people all around our city and, and people in our church family. Who's going to pray for, for first responders who are members of the Church of Brook Hills, but they, their work puts them in harm's way on a daily basis, hour after hour, they're right there in the midst of this, um, guess who's going to pray for all those groups of people? You are. I am. We are. Why? Because, because we're one, right? You can't, you can't have it by itself. A grit doesn't come alone. It, it lives in a community, right? We're praying for them. So um, I trust this has been a reality for, for many of us. It's certainly been a reality for me is... Um, if there is among the gifts that God is giving in the midst of this trial, I'll just talk about a gift that he's giving me, um, is the gift of prayer. prayer. Prayer has continued to be a discipline by God's grace in my life, but prayer feels different right now. I don't know if it feels different for you. Um, I'm praying. All, I just have this one unending, all day groan. It, prayer feels like clinging. Prayer feels uh, sometimes like desperation. We're lifting each other up and then so I'm praying for you. Um, and then we get together as a family and we open to the psalm of the day. And last night we opened to Psalm 28 because today's the 29th. Last night, yesterday was the 28th. So we opened to Psalm 28 after time of, of worship together. And, and my son, we passed out verses for us all to pray. And it fell to my son, Hunter, who was just playing keyboard here a moment ago. It fell to him to pray the last couple of verses of, of Psalm 28, which read this way. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. And I love these words. Save your people, shepherd them, and carry them forever. You start praying the Psalms and look how much ground and good body ministry you can do in prayer by just saying, save people, shepherd people today, carry people in our faith family. Do it now, Lord. Meet them right where they are. Carry them forever. That's what we're called to do as members of the church. Why? Because we're one, because we're a body. Christians don't come by themselves. So Jesus prays for our oneness. He prays for a second, our witness. He prays for our witness. So this is, in a way, this is at once both a prayer for his disciples and a commissioning service for his disciples. Look down at verse 18. Jesus is talking to the Father and he says, As you, Father, sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. It's a sending service. It's a commissioning. I, I love it because Jesus, he prays for the disciples who are there, the ones right there in the hearing, but he also goes so far as to pray for the disciples who aren't there yet. Look at verse 20. 
I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. I'm not just praying for the disciples who are here. I'm praying for the ones who aren't here yet. How can that be manifested in our own heart, our own lives, our own sense of of continued mission in the midst of this? I, I need to bring this up because it's just been an awkward thing. I don't know if some of you sense this. Uh, it, it feels a little strange closing our worship gatherings the way that we always do when we're here in this room. We close our worship gatherings with a reciting of the Great Commission where Jesus told his people to go into all the world. It feels a little strange standing up reciting the Great Commission and saying going to all the world when we know we're actually going, not going much of anywhere these days. This week, we're actually not going much of anywhere. So I think the $3 word for that is cognitive dissonance. It feels a little bit like cognitive dissonance reciting the Great Commission when we're all just going to be home all week, except when we leave to go to the grocery store or leave to do this or that thing. But um, don't miss the point, church. Here's why we still recite the Great Commission today. We'll do it again next Sunday. However long this thing goes, by God's grace, we'll keep reciting the Great Commission. And here's why. Nothing can stop the forward progress of the gospel. Nothing can stop. Let me say it another way. Nothing must be allowed to stop the forward progress of the gospel. Our missionary reflexes, our missionary heart, isn't dead. Our missionary reflexes aren't even on pause. They're finding new avenues, but it's not, it's not gone. We don't have a past. We can't just simply hunker down and, and be careless about the advancement of the gospel. Look, I, I believe um, God's got a lot of people's attention right now. People who don't worship Jesus at this point. And he's got their attention. My home city of New Orleans is experiencing it's gotten really bad there. I don't know if you've been tracking with the news that's going on there, but it's gotten really bad there. I heard just this week, earlier this week, I heard the governor and his voice was cracking as he looked at a camera and he told the people at the city of New Orleans, he said, please, I'm begging you, please stay home. Please stop getting out. Please make social distance. Stop going to church because some churches were continuing to, to gather together. And, um, and he's saying, please don't go. Don't go to all these places and gather with large numbers of people. And then, and then I read this text, which came to me from a nurse in New Orleans who's on the front lines. And she said this, quote, so many people quickly deteriorating and they don't make it. Families all sick. Families had to say goodbye over the phone, so hard. I've dealt with infectious disease patients for 25 years, but never on this scale. It is haunting what is happening on the front lines. And these are her final words. The world needs God so desperately right now. People are listening. They're listening and they're looking for hope right now. And we're those people. We're those people, right? We can't necessarily get within a six-foot distance, but they can see hope 10 feet out. They can see your hope from 10 feet out or 20 feet out. This is our time to shine, church. Where we are, people are talking. People in our neighborhoods, you walk down the street, and people want to stop and talk, and they stand afar off, but they want to talk and find out what's going on. I, talked and I saw a Brook Hills member in the parking lot of Publix uh, earlier this week. 
and talked to her from a distance and said, how are you doing? And there was a guy 40 feet across who was a total stranger to both of us, and he chimed in the conversation. That, that's never happened in Birmingham since I've been here. I've never seen somebody, just a perfect stranger, just enter into a conversation from 40 feet off. People want to talk. They want to find out how you're getting through this. Friends, um, the way you process suffering serves evangelism as well. The way we suffer serves evangelism as well. The, the great um, John Wesley, he saw large-scale spiritual awakening, uh, the likes of which hadn't been seen for centuries. And there in the 1700s, just, they called it the Great Awakening. Just this massive-scale spiritual awakening take place. It gave birth to what would eventually become the Methodist movement. But there were hard times going on there in the 1700s. And someone asked John Wesley much later, the aged John Wesley, and they said, why, why do you believe the Methodist movement spread so quickly? Here was his simple answer. He said, our people die well. The way that we process our suffering, the way that we process trials serves evangelistic purposes because your hope is showing you show that you have hope beyond the grave, that you have hope beyond this life, hope beyond the economy, hope in Christ alone, unshakable hope. We don't suffer as those who are without God. We don't suffer as those who are without hope. We have hope. Yeah, the apostle Paul did some of his best work in quarantine. You catch him in jail. And what's he doing? He's like, there are these, the weird thing about jail is there are these people called jailers and they're a captive audience. <laughs> the irony of that, right? And Paul is just, he's just sharing the gospel. He's, he's sharing his hope. He and, and Silas, their backs are flayed open in Acts chapter 16. They're in prison. What are they doing? They're singing and you can hear them. They're not quietly singing. They're not whispering. You can hear them all down cell block A. You hear two voices, two men singing hymns in the middle of the night. So when we recite the Great Commission and we say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, what that looks like may be different during a pandemic for sure, but the mission of Jesus isn't halted by COVID-19. It can't be halted. Or it's not halted by any other coming local crisis or any other coming global crisis. The mission endures. And, and here's one more thing just to throw in while we're here, while we're in this neighborhood. What if when the mandate is lifted and we get to retire the term social distancing, anybody looking forward to that? I can't wait to retire the term social distancing. But more important, I can't wait to retire the reality of social distancing. I want to see you yesterday, church. I want to hear your voices filling up my ears with biblical truth and biblical hope. I can't wait for that. But look, when this mandate is lifted, what if, there, what if there was an unbelievable surge in missional engagement from members of our church running toward the city, running toward the nations, because now we can. And here we just come out like newborn cats from the stall, and we're just running in the direction of Birmingham, running toward our neighbors, running toward the world. What, what if right now, maybe this is a possibility, maybe this is in the strange left-handed providence of God, one of the things that he's doing, is what if he's giving us margin to pull away from the busyness of life and to reconsider our role in his global purpose? 
What if that's one of the things that, that God is up to in the midst of this? Wouldn't it be awesome if this time away, this time of prayer, this time of focus yielded an, a new wave of outgoing midtermers from Brook Hills, a wave of outgoing long-termers who are like, I want to go. I want to live among unreached peoples. I want to live among the least reached who don't have access to the gospel. I want to I get there. And those conversations begin. What a joy that would be, right? But not only for those who go, but for those who stay after this mandate is lifted or even in the midst of this right now. What if um, a spirit of prayer descended upon members of the Church of Brook Hills? And whereas previously you would go out for an afternoon walk just to get some air, just to be out. Now, all of a sudden, there are days in your week where you go out for that walk and the Holy Spirit pulls up alongside and you get a burden dropped into your soul and you do business. You do work, kingdom work in prayer. And you're asking the Lord to send laborers into the harvest field. You're interceding for missionaries in the word. You're begging God, make your gospel triumph among the nations. Get mileage out of this. And, and what if he leads us to pray with, with newfound, spirit-prompted fervency because he intends to answer those prayers? Man, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be awesome? Jesus said, I have given them your word. They have received it. And now he says, as they speak your word, I'm praying for those who will believe through the word that they proclaim. What's, what's that saying? You can tell what's going on there. Gospel hope is communicable. Gospel hope, you read through the book of Acts and the gospel comes to town. It sweeps through a town. There are no believers there at the beginning of the day. End of the day, 3,000 believers standing in line at the waters of baptism that with all the discernible symptoms, if you will, of faith and repentance. They've caught it. it the gospel hope, gospel hope is communicable. It's infectious. Nothing can stop the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing can be allowed to stop the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leads us to one more prayer that Jesus prays for us. So oneness, witness, and worship. And in that way, this prayer in John 17 ends right where Jesus began in the first five verses. Jesus' ultimate purpose is to glorify the Father. That's, what, that's the big one. That's the big ask of all the asks. The big one is, Father, I want you glorified. Look at verse one. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Look at verse 25. Righteous father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that, here's, here's the purpose, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them them. Believer in Jesus, everything that God is doing in your life and my life, he is doing to show you and to show the world around you how worthy, how satisfying, how faithful, how good, how glorious God is. That's the big one. That's what Jesus wants the most. Christian transformation is not obedience driven. It's not 
muscle up. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's glory driven every day and all day. It's obedience is an inevitable outcome of beholding the glory of God in Christ. Mission is an inevitable outcome. That's why uh, author John Piper has so famously and helpfully said, worship is the fuel of mission and the goal of mission. If I can put it another way, worship powers the engine of earthly mission and mission drives the nations toward eternal worship. Let me say that again. Worship powers the engine of earthly mission and mission drives the nations toward eternal worship. Where we're going next, there will be no missionaries. There will be no three circle diagrams in the new creation, right? No unreached people groups. They'll all be there. Every tribe and tongue and nation will be there doing what? Worshiping. Worshiping the father who planned our salvation from eternity past. Worshiping the son who accomplished our salvation in his living and his dying and his death defying resurrection. Worshiping the spirit who softened our hearts so that the gospel broke through and, and leading us to disenthrone self and exalt Jesus as king. We're going to be worshiping the father and the son and the spirit, the blessed trinity for a thousand ages. The motivation for the whole of the Christian life, friends, has never changed from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory. That's the heartbeat, the deepest impulse of the believer is glory be to God, solely Deo glory, glory, glory that belongs to God alone. You know what? Um, Christians love to be reminded that their trust and obedience brings glory to God because that is the deepest impulse in our souls. It's put there by the Holy Spirit. That's that, that's that transforming work of regeneration. It gives us a new impulse. We want our lives to bring glory to God and, and Christians live for this future day when we will see the glory of God. That's the next point in your outline is what Jesus prays for here. It will be answered. We will see the glory of Christ. We will see the glory of the Father, the glory of the Spirit. The sun's going to be forever unemployed because we won't need it. The glory of God will light the skies of the new Jerusalem. It's going to be utterly amazing. You know, one of the traditions that we've had uh, for Mother's Day, particularly when our kids were, were younger, um, is we would make a video. So I would sneak off with, with each of our kids at some point in the day and would capture a video of them talking to their mom and just saying some of the things that they loved about their mom and appreciated about their mom. And sometimes you could see their eyes look up above the camera because I'd be coaching them and reminding them of things that their mom had done. They were too young to remember it all. And so I'm trying to coach them up from behind the camera. And then I would turn the camera around and I would talk to Paula. I would say things about their mom that I thought um, were encouraging. Well, the first year, that, that was going swimmingly. And then the first year that we got Ellie involved, she's our youngest, my daughter Ellie, and she's now 15. But when she was super young, um, she was probably four the first time I involved her in this video. And I made the video, captured what Ellie was saying. Well, Ellie's love language, if you will, is gift giving. And I hadn't factored how hard it would be for a four-year-old with the gift, with the love language of gift giving, how hard it was going to be for her to not tell her mom that we had just made this video. 
and how hard it was going to be for this four-year-old girl to wait all through Saturday and then into Sunday on Mother's Day where her mom would watch it and we'd all watch it together. So hours, you know, minutes after we made this video, Ellie is whispering within an earshot of my wife, Paula, Ellie's whispering, can we show her now? Like she wants to show mom the video and I'm kind of putting her off and making eyes like trying to communicate cues like we're not doing that right now. Well, check us out later Saturday night and the right in front of the TV, we plugged it in and we're all watching it together because Ellie could not keep quiet anymore. And she's all day. Can we show her now? Can we show her now? The secret was out at that point. And when we watched the video together Saturday night before Mother's Day, two people were beaming. One was the gift recipient, namely my wife, Paula. And the other was the gift giver, our four-year-old daughter, who could not hold back. She was dying to show her mom what we had prepared for her. Friends, when Jesus thinks of the most thrilling gift that he could give to his disciples, he prays, Father, can we show them? Can we show them the glory that I had with you before the world existed, before Genesis 1, before the lights, before the trees, before Adam and Eve? Can we show them the glory I had with you before the world was made? You put this into perspective that Jesus is asking for this. His disciples followed the man from Nazareth into pain, into rejection. They watched Jesus' teaching rejected. They followed him through many dangers, toils, and snares. They left everything behind just because he called them. He had no outward form or appearance that would suggest anything beyond his claims, right? But they still followed after him. In moments from now, after John 17, they're going to see this same Jesus humiliated. They're going to see him falling repeatedly in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to see God face planting in the Garden of Gethsemane, so agonized that he's sweating drops of blood are coming through his pores. They're going to see Jesus unable to carry his cross, his own cross. They're going to see him breathing his last. They're going to see God beaten beyond recognition. All, all of the pre-incarnate glory of the eternal son that caused angels to cover their faces and their feet and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That all of that was buried under veil after veil of his humanity. But they followed him anyway. And Jesus says, Father, his words, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That prayer will be answered. God will show you, believer in Christ, the glory of his son. And, and one sight of his eternal glory will vindicate a thousand sorrows a thousand anxieties, a thousand pains. That, friends, is called, what the church has called for centuries, the blessed hope. It animates the endurance of the church. It fuels the mission of the church. It fires the worship of the church. Brooke Hills, what happens if this prayer of Jesus in John 17 makes contact with your soul this week? If it makes contact with our souls this week, we're going to find ways to be one, to love one another. We're going to find ways to bear witness. 
going to find ways to shine his lights and share our hope. And when this season is over, we're going to break loose like cats from the stall. We're going to run toward Birmingham. We're going to run toward the nations. We're going to run toward each other. We're going to gather. We're going to sing like the saved. It's going to be unbelievable. But what if in this moment of forced physical retreat, what if the Holy Spirit answered this prayer from Jesus and prepared us for spiritual advance?